We've got a guest speaker this morning. Simon Gillibo is known to many of us. He's spoken here a number of times over, <coughs> over I guess, about 20 years he's been coming. And um, he leads the thing. He lived in Burundi for many, many years, and he'll tell you more about that Great Lakes outreach, which he still is involved heavily with. He now lives in Bath, England, for the last three years. But it's always a joy to have Simon with us. It's also always a challenge to have Simon with us. So prepare to be challenged. Would you please welcome Simon Gillibo? Thank you, thank you, thank you. <clears throat> Great. Well, it's, it's a real treat to be back. I love what you guys are doing in the city, and it's been good to watch it from a distance for all these years. Listen, some of you have heard me before, some of you haven't. I think it's my five or sixth time here, but that's where I lived for 20 years. Became Burundian. Amen. Anyone get that? Any Burundians? No. So next one. Uh, that's where I lived and worked with my family out of Bujumbura. Uh, that's the capital. It's a small country the size of Wales. Next one. That's our charity. So the transforming Burundi and beyond. The beyond would be telling, telling the stories at Burundi. You, you'll hear a few right now. Absolutely incredible. And I've written a couple of books. Next one. Uh, so war zone. So yeah, when I went out there, it was the most dangerous country in the world. Literally, that was 1999. And uh, I lived expecting to die. I thought I'd die. I never thought I'd make the age of 30. Never thought I'd get married. Never thought I'd have kids. And you might think, well, that's a horrible way. Horrible way to live. It's a brilliant way to live because, you know, you're not going to waste your time, are you? If you think you're going to die next week, you're not going to get really overexcited about a new carpet fitting or, or you know, you're going to hold short accounts. You're going to make sure you've told everyone that you love them, that you've offered and received forgiveness. It's a brilliant way to live. Our challenge here, there's no bombs falling on Nottingham. And that's a good thing. But actually, it means you could, you could just, mm, you, can, you, you can live apathetically. And that's part of the challenge that I want to bring today. Next one. Uh, so that's uh, one of the books. So basically my logic is, is how far is too far when Jesus went that far for us on the cross? And he didn't go that far for us just to be nice people in Nottingham. It's so much more than that. Next one, that's, the, that's Choose Life. So it doesn't matter what you had on your toast for breakfast. It does matter. Some choices really do matter. It does matter whether you choose to live shackled by fear like most of this nation is or either you live by faith. It does matter whether you choose cynicism or, or action. It matters whether you choose to live urgently or apathetically. It matters. There's all sorts of things that really do matter. Gratitude or grumpiness. Uh, so, so if you want to get a daily shot in the arm, grab that afterwards. Next one. So that's my team. Uh, told you I went out as a single man, expected to die, didn't die. Anyway, look at my daughter there. She is named after the next one. Uh, and I've told, I told this story last time I was here, but there's always a twist. There's a new twist to it, and it's a beautiful story, and it's the whole bedrock of my life. So I held that girl in 1997. I heard her story, and her story was that her mummy threw her away, gave birth to her, and dropped, dropped her down the toilet at the university hospital. The next person going to the toilet saw this piece of flesh moving in there, and they fished her out, reached down and fished her out. The right reason she was alive, that her neck got caught in the U-bend of the toilet. And she was, she was alive, praise God. And she was, that person cleaned her off, got poo on themselves in the process, fed her through a straw like a little bird, weighing just a couple of pounds. Next one, that's her 18 years later. Beautiful young lady. And uh, next one. Uh, she ended up being our babysitter as God wove the tapestry of our lives together. I told my wife we got married, if we are ever blessed with a daughter, I want to name her after that girl. The reason being is my friend who, who adopted her gave her the most beautiful name, which is the embodiment of the gospel, and the name is Grace. You see, it doesn't matter whether we're multi-merging rapists, pillaging idiots in Central Africa or very self-absorbed people here in Nottingham. We all need God's grace, don't we? None of us can get out that pit, that metaphorical pit by ourselves. If you're new to faith or you're just checking out this Jesus thing this morning, this picture to me is so clear, is that we're all separated from God and we can't 
get up to God. So he came down to us in Jesus. The theological word is incarnation. Jesus is God incarnate, God with flesh on, so we could understand and relate to him. And he came down, picked us up. When he died on the cross, he took all up on him so that we could be clean and pure and free. And he can look at each one of us this morning and say, that's my boy, that's my girl. I love you. How much? That much. That's grace. That is amazing grace. How sweet the sound. The saviour wretch like me. And uh, so little white one is named after big black one. I love that next one. She, that's, we, we help her get a scholarship to America. She gets a distinction in her degree. Next one, she comes back to Burundi, working in social media for us. Next one, this is the lovely twist of her ongoing journey from the pit of a toilet. Now she's doing her master's, started in January at the University of Newcastle. That is the hope, isn't it? From the pit of the toilet. Now listen, wherever I go, wherever I go, I say to people, I'm not after your money. I'm not after your, um, you, you, I'm not on a recruiting drive for Brindley, but I'd love you to pray. So in each place now, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a thing. You can start passing along. You'll, you, this iPad will come your way. If you want to hear these crazy stories of faith, sign up. If you've got too many meals, don't bother. But I'm still alive because people pray. Once I drove along a road, 40 people got killed. A guy came to my house with a grenade to blow me up, wrote me a letter saying he's going to cut out my eyes. I don't think I'm any better than anyone else, but I am more prayed for. And our guys out there doing incredible stuff, they said, please get people to pray. So you'll get that, that iPad coming, just pass it on if you're too busy. That's the bonus for me. Back to those pictures. We can't understand 56% malnourishment in this country. That's a massive statistic. It's the highest in the world. So we're the poorest and hungriest country in the world, according to the World Bank. 56%, what does that mean? Uh, well, this fleshes it out. So that blonde-haired girl there, cute little blonde-haired girl, she's four years old. Her name's Alma. Girl in the middle, she's four. Or she was four. And I don't know how that makes you feel. That makes me, that elicits two emotions in me. Anger and compassion. Angry because that is wrong. And I trust no one here thinks that white life is worth more than black life or any other color. We're all so precious to God. And that's wrong. And if she's, if she's alive, she's probably died, but if she's alive, that precious little girl, then um, she's probably got you know, stunted brain development from malnutrition from an early age. That's pretty routine. So that's wrong. So anger and compassion. So angry. You know, if I smack someone in the face to resolve an argument, uh, that's not the best outworking of anger. That's not righteous anger. But righteous anger is not a sin. You know, when, God saw the misuse, when Jesus saw the misuse of his father's house, he got angry. And so the Bible doesn't say don't be angry, don't suppress your anger, but in your anger, don't sin. Be angry and don't sin. So anger and then compassion. We weep with those who weep. There's so many needs. You don't have to go to Burundi's. I know there's plenty of needs in the city to, to weep over and to get angry about. And to, that leads us to action, to engage. What does that look like for you guys here? Next one. So for 16 years, barring one because of COVID, so 15 years, do the maths on this, we sent out an average of 700 evangelists into the bush to cast out demons and heal the sick and get beaten up, get put in prison, even lead their cellmates to Christ. And so we're doing that in a couple of weeks' time, a couple of months, next month, uh, four weeks' time, we'll be doing that again. Next one. And loads of stories. These are just some of the, so witch doctor here. Um, I'll tell a different story, actually, because, you know, those are the first service. But so one lady, so many apostolic stories. Uh, one lady, we arrived and... Uh, and she just basically went, F off, you know, we're not interested in your Jesus. And, uh, and so our guys like retreating, retreating respectfully. Then she came back and said, all right, I'll, you, I'll let you talk to my village. First of all, heal this demon-possessed girl. So she was saying, don't just talk a good game, but show us the power. So they gather around, the whole village came to watch. They prayed over this girl. All those demons were identified and cast out in Jesus' name. On the spot, that antagonistic lady who was saying to them to F off a few minutes earlier, and 22 people in that village gave their lives to Christ. That's our Jesus. If you go back to that picture, that is a witch doctor. 
That's a witch doctor. That's two witch doctors in different instances. One that got slain in the spirit when they said, Muizina ya Yesu in Jesus' name. And, and then he assembled the whole village. 50 people in that village gave their lives to Christ. Next one. This is Louis. So I cycled, literally two weeks ago, I cycled past Louis' village. He's a precious man. Look at that cheesy grin on his face. But two years ago, he was a loser with no hope. He was a widower. He was blind. Everyone knew he was a blind. He was a beggar on the street. His kids had abandoned him. He had no hope. And he came on one of our outreaches, prayed for He was healed. And you can't deny a story. So his kids have come to faith. And we gave him some pigs last Christmas. And that started a little pig business. So he's self-sustaining. And he's found some wrinkly old babe to get married to. He is a happy man. Look at him, cheesy grin on his face. The Lord is meeting all his needs. According to his glorious riches in Christ. The gospel changes everything. Next one. That's Francine. Francine is a modern day version of that lady in the Bible who was bleeding. And uh, you know, desperate, desperate. So she reached out and judged Jesus. So desperate, so brave of that vulnerable woman. She did it and she was healed. And that's what happened to Francine. She didn't literally touch Jesus because Jesus isn't here in the flesh, but he is by the Spirit as he's here right now and can do the same this morning. And so she came on one of our meetings desperate. Her husband had left her because he couldn't have sex with her anymore. So, so, you know, she was, again, hopeless, lost and desperate. So she came on our meeting. She was healed. She knew she was healed. She rushed home. She sought out her friend. She sought out her husband said, you're coming home, baby. Uh, and uh, they are back enjoying themselves. And, and you know, he's, he's come to faith. Again, the gospel changes everything. Next one. So again, if you're signing up, you'll get these kinds of stories. They build our faith, don't we? That's part of our jobs to build faith. So that is Innocent, one of our star young leaders. Look at him. We got a photo like that because he's the skinniest rake in the world. But he's skinny because he's so hungry for God. And he fasts and prays and seeks the Lord. And, uh, you know, how much do you want of God? Because no one has less of God than they want. These guys have so much to teach us. So Innocent, one of the many gifts he's got is the gift of healing. And he goes in that secret place with the Lord. And on one occasion, these two mute ladies came, you know, didn't say, but pray for us. So uh, he took them around the corner. Everyone knew they were mute. And he, he took them around. He just finished preaching the church service. He left the guys and he took them around the corner into a room. He said, God, I will pray for three days. Do you want to, sorry, do you want to keep that in the same row? It goes back that way rather than, uh, I will pray for three days. I'm happy to not leave this room. I'm desperate for these people to be, to be healed. So, so he started praying. It didn't take three days. It took 10 minutes, and they were healed. And uh, they started speaking and crying. And, and so he actually took them around the corner. The church choir, having a practice, he interrupted the church choir. said, guys, I got you two new choir members. And they went, that is a sick joke. You know, we know those girls. And he said to the girls, have you got anything you want to say? And they went, la! And, uh, you know, choir members falling on their knees, crying, seeing the power of God. It's beautiful, isn't it? That is our God. Next one. That is if you wanted to follow us. Next one. Um, and that is just, I just want to say, and it resonated with some people as you came up to me after the first service, you know, we listen to way too much news, period. Stop watching the news. Not completely, watch for five minutes a day. But just enough so you can inform you in terms of how to pray. It's good to be aware of what's going on in the world. But we are just feeding ourselves fear and cynicism, and there's not, no different we, difference we can make, and, and let's give up, and depressive stuff. And so that is a podcast, if you want to sign up for that, called Inspired, where each week I just get in a stunning uh, brother or sister from whatever walks of life in this country and into the nation. So I'd love you to sign up for that. Right, so that's preamble. Now we're going to look at the scriptures. I'm going to start with two questions. Are you salty? And are you shiny? It's a bit weird, isn't it? But uh, you'll get it when we look at Matthew chapter 5. Are you salty and are you shiny? Now, after the Second World War, hoping to control and eventually wipe out Christianity in Romania, the communist regime confiscated 
church property and forbade ministers to work without licenses from the government. And soon after taking power, they convened a congress from, from, of all the Christian bodies in Romania, 4,000 priests, bishops and ministers assembled in the great hall of the parliament building before a huge portrait of Stalin, the Russian dictator. And under fear of imprisonment, torture and death, one Christian leader after another stepped forward and praised communism and declared its compatibility with Christianity, that it had similar goals. Now, sitting in that meeting amongst the 4,000 was a well-educated Lutheran pastor and his wife. His name was Richard Wormbrand. His wife's name was Sabina. And they listened distraught at people uh, denying their Christ, essentially. And she turned to him. Sabina turned to Richard with flaming eyes and said, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting on his face. He whispered back to her, if I do that, you will lose your husband. And she said, I don't want a coward for a husband. And so he stepped forward and well, he got permission to speak and it was being beamed on national radio and, and he stood on that platform, looked out at everybody, knew what was about to happen. He said, it is our job, it's our duty as ministers to glorify Christ. Boom, that led to 14 years of imprisonment, not any kind of imprisonment, three years of solitary confinement where he didn't hear a word in total darkness, where they mocked him and scored him and forced him to eat his own feces in mock uh, Holy Communion. His wife was told that he was dead. Sabina thought she, he was dead. She was then imprisoned for three years, during which time their boy became a street child. He's left on the streets. Unbelievable suffering. He wrote Tortured for Christ. <sighs> what incredible suffering for insisting on retaining his saltiness and shining. There's a bunch of you here, I gather, from Iran. Fastest growing church in the world right now is Iran, from a very low base, but explosive in growth. And uh, this is the line that has most blown me away in the last few years, and it's from a precious Iranian sister. They were a couple. They managed to get out of the dangers of Iran, as many of your stories are, needing to get out of serious persecution if you become a follower of Jesus out there. And so they managed to get to America. But after a few months in America, the, the wife said to her, her husband, darling, I want you to take me back to Iran. There is a satanic lullaby in this nation. All the Christians are asleep, and I feel myself being lulled to sleep. What a... What a she was saying, I'd rather go back and risk rape, imprisonment, torture, death, than allow myself to continue to be exposed to the satanic lullaby that's just taking everyone out. And she says, she said, all the Christians are asleep. Clearly not all the Christians are asleep. And, and America is very similar to the UK. Clearly we're not all asleep, but a lot of us are being lulled to sleep. Some of us have been lulled to sleep, and that's a massive wake-up call. And, and so with that as a preamble, let's turn to the Scriptures. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. 
Second picture. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So two questions. First one, are you salty? Michael Yusuf writes, it's difficult for us in the modern world to fully appreciate the value of salt in the ancient world. Roman soldiers were given their wages in salt. Did you know that? Leviticus 2.13 speaks of the Mosaic Law's requirement for salt in all grain offerings. The Greeks considered salt to be divine. And different theologians have highlighted the different attributes of salt. So its whiteness represented the purity of the holy believer. Or as salt stings and open wounds, so were Christians to sting the world with judgment and rebuke. Or as salt uh, flavors a dish, uh, so Christians were to have the same positive impact on their society. Or as salt creates thirst, so Jesus' people should create a spiritual longing and thirst in others around them through their attractive lifestyles. So it goes on, but probably the main purpose of salt that Jesus is identifying and pointing to is that it stops decay. In saying you are the salt of the earth, he is calling on his disciples in their day and us in our day to serve as preservatives to stop the moral decay in our rotting culture. And they would have understood it. They would have understood that those fish they just caught in Lake Galilee uh, within a couple of hours on the sun or you know, a day or two uh, would be rotting and useless and, and good for nothing. And without refrigeration, that would be the case. Uh, so, so they needed to, to salt their fish effectively. Now that's our privilege. That's our privilege. That's your privilege this morning to be salt, to act as salt. But Jesus carries on with a warning. Look down there, it says, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salt again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. So Jesus is saying, he's not saying we can lose our salvation, but he is saying we can lose our saltiness. And when salt becomes contaminated, it's, it's basically poisonous, it's corrosive, it's not good for anything, it's just chucked on the road. If we've lost our saltiness through compromise or apathy or indifference, Jesus' assessment is blunt and clear. And listen, if that's the case for you this morning, you need to repent, you need to confess, and there's a recommissioning. And there's restoration. And that may, be, that may be you this morning. I mean, it's definitely some of us. It's probably a lot of us. Are you salty? Are you still salty? Did you used to be salty? Do you still want to be salty? Have you lost your saltiness? And maybe it's been easier for me to stay salty, as you can imagine, because I've lived in a very sort of extreme environment where you can't fake it. You can't just mess around. If it's true, you're all in. And our challenge is we live in a consumer culture where it's all about comfort. So we can wittingly or unwittingly settle for consumer religion, a consumer Jesus. I didn't get much out of worship this morning. The sermon didn't do much for me. It's not about you. Jesus says, if anyone is going to come after me, he or she must deny self, take up cross daily and follow me. On one occasion, I was sort of having a mini breakdown in 2015. It wasn't literally a breakdown, but I was weeping in a cafe as our country was going to the dogs. Half a million people fled the country, people being tortured and killed, and it was very messy. Our church decimated, well, decimated because people were fleeing. I had to get through burning roadblocks to get to the church on Sunday morning. And I, was, I was there, I was thinking about my friend Ephraim's five-year-old daughter, who's, who's wetting herself every time that uh, she heard gunfire, which is, I don't know, 20 times a day, so psst. 
She just, that's trauma multiplied hundreds, thousands of times over, like what's going on in Ukraine right now, just desperate. And uh, so in this cafe, as I was weeping, I, I ended up doing, a, I wrote a blog and I, I called it The Curse of Comfort. And here is just a part from that blog. See if you resonate with it. There is a noble defiance in worshiping God in the midst of grim circumstances. And that is where the curse of comfort comes in. And I don't want to criticize Western Christianity, but as products of our consumer culture, we invariably end up conforming rather than transforming. In Romans 12, speak, acting as thermometers which reflect the reality of the environment rather than thermostats which set the very temperature and alter the whole environment. Thus, we often unwittingly craft ourselves a more comfortable consumer cross and our whole worship experience can end up feeling shallow and anemic. And it's so easy to turn to comfort, be it Facebook or chocolate or sex or TV, whatever, rather than to Christ. And it's no wonder I reflected why my most intimate corporate spiritual experiences in the West have been with the most obviously broken people, tramps, alcoholics, teen challenged, prisoners in prisons, because they don't feel the need to maintain the facade that their lives are all in order. And God doesn't love us sophisticated people more than them, or them more than us, but what they do have over us is discomfort. They've been stripped of the mixed blessing or curse of comfort, and in their brokenness, stench, and unpolished desperation, God is extremely close. Now, brothers and sisters, if you're going through a hell of a time this morning, God is extremely close. I mean, he's extremely close to all of us. But if you're clinging to the consumerism and comfort, it's harder for you to experience him because you just, you just lost the plot and be de being desensitized to spiritual realities. That's the challenge, isn't it? And I get back, I get on a plane and leave Central Africa as I did a couple of weeks ago and come out here and it's like, it's, it's like being on a different planet. How does it, what does it look like to be, to be salty? Uh, how is this affecting our hearts? Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, above all else, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. So let's look briefly in the realm of entertainment. What do we let into our hearts? What do we let into our souls? Because what goes in will come out. So how does this apply in the, in the realm of entertainment. And you'll, you guys will know that picture, that analogy of a frog in a, in a pan of water. Do you remember that? You put a frog in a pan of water and it's boiling and he jumps out because he knows it's hot. But you put that frog in the same pan of water, same hot, but cold water, you turn it out by increments, that frog just, just sits there and gets cooked. Well, that's apparently the case. It's, I don't believe it. I don't think it's true, having done some research. But it's a powerful picture. It's a powerful picture. And in Burundi, it's the boiling pan. You can't fake it. But, but here, we're just, we're just getting taken out. So many of you are taken out. Rockabye baby on the treetop. What are you watching? Are you guarding your heart? What does it look like in terms of our viewing habits? Listen, this is, this is me writing to my sister a number of years ago over Big Brother which dates it somewhat. But listen to this. This, this could apply to Love Island, plus, 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 and other things. What's it do to your heart? Dear sister, I love you. And what may have started as a vaguely legitimate social experience a number of years ago has defended it into something so pathetically base, and it makes me absolutely gutted that you, who I love so much and want to be proud of, can get sucked into it and consider it entertainment. 
Don't put this down to my faith, although of course my faith defines my values, but put it rather down to my humanity. I fear that the you and nearly eight million people who watch Big Brother are losing your humanity. You see, if you stick people in a cage and observe them operate as animals and indeed create an environment to cause them to behave all the more animalistically, then your voyeurism debases you as much as them. You become less human. So ratings were plummeting. And what did they do? They lowered the ceiling to make it more claustrophobic. They put a camera on them everywhere. I mean, even as they go to the bog. I mean, come on. They get, get them all to sleep in one room with insufficient beds. They have people, many very weird, picked on their ability to wind each other up. Hmm, that's, that's really wholesome. Now listen, I tried watching with you. I tried not judging, but I just couldn't stay. It made me feel all churned up inside. I wanted to cry. I wanted to scream and ask you where you'd lost any ability to discern what is legitimate amusement and what is sick. So I ask you, do you have any reservations about them flashing their tits and backsides, simulating oral sex, shaving their hairy butts, smearing the mammaries with jam and getting others to lick it off, vomiting, wrestling topless in the mud, having sex under the table, constantly swearing and a whole lot more? Can you not see that you are victims of a tragically manipulative agenda of getting viewers at any cost to win the ratings war? Don't you think it's shameful? Don't you think it's wrong? Is there no such thing as right or wrong anymore? Can you hear the satanic lullaby? Big Brother, the first one ever. This is back in maybe 2000. It was won by a Scot called Callum, who coincidentally worked in Burundi at the orphanage where Grace was raised. And he was a full-on Christian. He went back from the orphanage, went on, appeared on Big Brother, and he was such a good bloke. And it was quite an edifying... <laughs> performance, I suppose, and, and, and he won it and people loved him, but the ratings weren't that high and the producers said, we will never ever have a Christian on again because it's not coarse and base enough. Because he wasn't bitching about people and brothers and sisters, above all else, please guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. You're just getting taken out. Down will come, baby, cradle and all. Let's look at our culture. Listen, I'm not cherry-picking picking these pet peeves or my issues at all. It's literally in the text. A couple of paragraphs later, Jesus addresses them. Look at verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is heavy. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You know, Jesus clearly not trying to win any popularity competition. You know, he certainly spoke of hell often. He didn't shy away from it. Our culture nowadays scorns and derides the concept of hell as primitive and ridiculous. But no, the stakes are high, folks. There will be a judgment day. And the reality, again, in this passage, as Jesus outlines, chapter 7, 13, 14, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and only a few find it. So Jesus, first of all, offends us about with his insistence on the reality of hell. And then he comes out with this ridiculous pronouncement on equating lust, a lustful look with, with adultery. I mean, surely that's absurd. 
But today in England, you know, 4%, 4% of people think that pre- or extramarital sex is wrong. 4% only. Does that, does that make the majority right? I mean, Jesus and the rest of Scripture is clear that God's beautiful gift, which it is, of sex, is for, in the, for the context of a lifelong union between a husband and a wife. Now, that's a tough stance to, t- to take in our culture nowadays. So if you're in a relationship with someone who is not your, your wife or husband, then whatever you, a sexual relation, then whatever you're doing is with someone else's future husband or wife, but it's certainly not appropriate in what's going on right now. And ouch, Simon, that hurts. Or how dare you say that to me? But you see, the only way we can, we can accommodate is to compromise and lose our saltiness and hide the light. Let me say again, God is not a spoil sport. He made this glorious gift. But a lot of the breakdown in our society is down to us not following his beautiful blueprint. So this is fascinating. This is a Harvard sociologist professor, P.A. Sorokin. He wrote a book on the American sex revolution, but he looked back at the Bolsheviks. So in Soviet Union, Russia, way back when, in the 1920s, and he listened to what he said, that the revolution leaders deliberately attempted to destroy marriage and the family. The legal distinction between marriage and, and casual sexual intercourse was abolished. Bigamy and polygamy were permissible under the new provisions. Abortion was facilitated in the state institutions. Premarital relationships were praised. Extramarital relationships were considered normal. But listen, within a few years, millions of lives, especially of young girls, were wrecked. And the hatred and conflicts mass rapidly mounted, and so did psychoneurosis. Work in the national factories slackened, and the government was forced to reverse its policy. Well, there is an atheistic regime which is giving two fingers to God, saying, let's follow a different blueprint, and it's carnage. Because God's blueprint is best. Now listen, are you salty? Are you shiny? There's so much confusion in our culture right now. Because of our, in, our age, in our age of moral relativism, most people haven't got a consistent plumb line by which to define what's right and what's wrong. So issues of, of sexuality and gender and identity politics, you know, all these are massively important and delicate. And we need to speak, we need to listen first of all, very carefully. We need to speak sensibly. We need to love consistently with a love that does not condemn, that does not judge. I mean, again, in this passage, it's so rich. He he says, do not judge in chapter seven. Do not judge or you too will be judged. So our our job is not the judging, but neither does it mean that we are bullied by the sort of cultural militant Marxist voice that is saying that you have to subscribe, positively affirm uh, the current prevailing cultural view uh, that runs actually counter to our scriptures. So uh, a while back, I was having lunch with a mate of mine, Peter, and he's just been fired for a comment he made in a different context that his belief was that marriage was between a man and a woman. And for that, he was forced to appear before the school authorities. And if he was not willing to absolutely positively promote a different agenda that he simply couldn't subscribe to by his conscience, then he would lose his job. And he he was dismissed. Now that is nuts. That is nuts. And you don't even have to be a follower of Jesus to find that chilling. If that's the consequence of not towing the line and eagerly adopting this this little creeping Orwellian groupthink, down will come baby cradle and all. Listen, we've considered salt very briefly. Let's look at the complementary analogy of light. 
verse 14, Jesus tells his disciples, you, we, we, we today, we're the light of the world. Now, as salt, we were to counteract the power of sin. As light, our job is to make visible and to illuminate, not our own light, but obviously pointing to Jesus. Jesus, John 8, 12 said, I am the light of the world. So we're to reflect this glorious light uh, to those around us, unashamedly, not putting it under a bowl so that, so that it's covered. As Paul wrote in Philippians 2.15, uh, we are to shine among them like stars in the sky. Michael Yusuf writes, the Greek word here used is very similar to the word for, for the beacon that a lighthouse emits. And that beacon is bright, it's unmistakable in its purpose. It warns of danger, it directs a safe harbour, it provides hope for those who have lost hope, and every day we are surrounded by people groping around in the darkness, separated from the God who loves them. Now, crucial, folks, we are not any better than anyone else. We are just better off because we're forgiven and we're free and we know where we're headed. We've got assurance of eternal life and the accompanying indwelling Holy Spirit in our day to day. We're not crippled by guilt. We don't have to impress some people, please. We are loved by our Heavenly Father. So that's a great message to share. That grace is an unbelievable dynamic. Are you, sal are you salty? Are you shiny? In the workplace, what's that look like for us in the workplace? Well, you know, we have values of greed and running rough, roughshod and, and profit being the bottom line, etc. What's it look like? About integrity in the workplace. One of my mates, he uh, was about to have to let go 140 staff. He was on that week of bankruptcy. Everyone in the city in London had said, you cannot, we're watching him, because you cannot run this business honestly. It's impossible. This is multi-million. And a guy had stopped him on the street one time, prophesied over him that his, he was there in the city to soak up corruption. I mean, that's not attractive. He talks about 10 years every day wanting to vomit as he went into the office. The sheer pressure he was under. Everyone's saying, he's going to fail, he's going to fail. And then at the last minute, two, three days, I think it was, before he declared bankruptcy, he got the biggest contract in his industry, a 20-year contract outbidding two of the top 10 companies in the world. And everyone's like, okay, okay. Soaking up corruption in the city. Or I think of my friend Antoinette, who's, who's, who is sort of cleaning up the cleaning industry. She says so many of these precious ladies particularly end up being shafted and not given a good wage. And that's so wrong. And so she, as a cleaner, she's mobilized people and she's She's, she's being salt and light where she is, and she's making a difference in many, many people's lives. What does it look like for you? All sorts of different contexts. God wants to use you, but don't lose your saltiness, and don't stop shining. Don't hide your light. Our culture, it's a sort of shallow materialism. It's a pursuit of wealth at all costs and possessions, and it's a worship of celebrities. It's so bankrupt. And I contrast, I contrast that with a guy in, in Burundi. So the lady who died recently, who adopted uh, Grace, at a funeral a few months ago, uh, she, during the war, she saw an old man with his empty bowl praying in a refugee camp. She went, it just looked an, 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 a strange sight. So she went over and sat next to him. What's your story, old man? He told her how he'd walked six days to get to that refugee camp. He'd seen his wife and kids hacked to death and his house burnt down. And in his 80s, there he was with nothing left in the world. And at the end, this horrific story of woe, he turned to her and he said, Madame Missionnaire, I never realized that Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. Salt, being salt and light will mean recognizing that people are more important than stuff. Relationships is what life is about. 
A great African proverb is, if, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. We need to journey together. The individualism of our culture is not healthy. Interdependence, working together, is much healthier. And Jesus, you know, he looked at the crowd and he loved the crowd and he, he, he loved them in their lostness and he, he wept over Jerusalem and he looked at the, remember the rich young man? And he let the rich young man walk away sad because he didn't soft pedal the gospel. He just let him walk away sad. But he loves us too much to, to, to sort of tone things down, if you like. And he's saying, that, that's, our, that's our temptation as well. But thereby we lose our saltiness and we stop shining. So how can you remain salty and shiny? I love this quote. This is Ivan Illich. He was an Austrian philosopher. And he was asked whether it was more effective to change society through violent revolution or gradual reform. Is it more effective to change society through violent revolution or gradual reform? He said, neither. If you want to change society, you must tell an alternative story. I love it, Atran. Lots of you are telling an alternative story. There's loads of good stuff. If you're a passenger and not involved, please get involved for your own good. 20% of people do 80% of the work. Don't be a passenger. Don't be a spectator. You're missing out. You're shortchanging yourself as well as your community. What the Lord wants to do in and through you. All hands on deck. So what is that alternative story going to look like? Because that's what I want to tell. It's going to be one of hope, of grace, of forgiveness, of sacrifice. That's, Jesus promised life, in, life to the full, life in abundance. So if we took Galatians 5, 22 and 23, remember that, those verses on the fruit of the Spirit? Well, that's love, joy, peace, etc. Well, it's going to be love instead of a polemic, binary, hate-filled arguments that are constantly going on. It's going to be joy instead of relentless pessimism, dark despair, negativity. It's going to be peace. Yes, deep shalom that passes understanding and stills us despite the challenging circumstances we're going through. It's going to be patience in our frenetic sort of road rage, aggressive, sniping culture. It's going to be kindness instead of nastiness and malice and heartlessness. It's going to be goodness instead of cruelty and indecency. It's going to be faithfulness instead of fickleness and disloyalty. It's going to be gentleness instead of harshness. It'll be self-control instead of rashness and unconstraint. We have got the best alternative story to tell. And this young Zimbabwean man who was martyred for his faith, he wrote quite a long piece, stunning. I've just taken, condensed it. He said this, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power the die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus, and so I must Go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognising me. My banner will be clear. Well, Trent, Vineyard, may your banner be clear. As individuals, as families, may our banner be clear. Remember Richard Wormbrand? What a price he is willing to play to remain uncompromising, to speak the truth in love, to hold the line. What about that Iranian sister? I mean, did, 
I don't know the rest of the story. Did she succumb to that satanic lullaby? Or did she indeed go back to Iran? And is she in prison right now? Is she, what's going on in her life? Or did she decide to stay in America and be salt and be light after all? Recognizing she needed to stay and resist and model living awake and not being lulled to sleep, marching to the beat of a ra radically different drum. Listen, guys, we can't settle for bumper stickers and slogans. God is calling us to scars. And, I, and there's a sense of heaviness in the room. It's an appropriate heaviness because sometimes you just hear the word of God. And you think, I'm that frog in the pan. Things need to change. I've been drinking sewage on a regular basis. And he wants a clean bride. It's pure bride. And it's all out of grace. We got the best message in the world. And he wants to ramp things up. And he wants to use every single one of us. He wants us to tell that alternative story. What are you going to do? Are you salty? Are you shiny? 